You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Mike Troy, host of the American Revolution podcast on the Airwave Media Network. This podcast is the origin story of the United States, how we went from colonies ruled by a king to the democratic republic that we have today. The American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end. Please subscribe for free. We're available on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will join me today on the American Revolution podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today is the second part in our series on one of the world's greatest travelers and explorers, Ibn Battuta. Often referred to as the Islamic Marco Polo, Ibn Battuta journeyed throughout Africa, the Middle East, and Asia in the 14th century. His travels covering an astounding 73,000 miles, or 117,000 kilometers. It is truly a remarkable story, even if there's likely some exaggerations involved. One note for today. You can look at our website, explorerspodcast.com, to find a map of Ibn Battuta's journeys. And that is it for notes. Let's get Ibn Battuta back on the road. Last time, we left our Moroccan Berber traveler in Mecca after finishing his Hajj, it had been a 3,700-mile, or 6,000-kilometer, journey. A pilgrimage to Mecca was one of the most important things required of a Muslim at some time in their life. Ibn Battuta had done this by the age of 22. Now, at this point, it was likely assumed that he would head home. He was, after all, part of an important family of Islamic legal scholars and jurists in Tangier. But young Ibn Battuta had caught something that prevented him from going back to his homeland just yet, wanderlust. Wanderlust is defined by Merriam-Webster as, quote, a strong longing for or impulse toward wandering, end quote. It is a simple explanation, but it perfectly encapsulates Ibn Battuta at this time and place. He had found that he enjoyed traveling. He liked meeting important religious and political figures. He found wonder and meaning in visiting holy places. He was a curious and at times impetuous young man, happy to strike off when the opportunity presented itself. This was a rare thing, especially for a man in his time and place. We can't forget that traveling was a dangerous endeavor. There were risks to travel, such as bandits, warfare, and unrest. There was disease and hunger, not to mention loneliness. Morocco offered Ibn Battuta comfort, security, and family. Yet he put those things aside, electing to travel and explore and broaden his world. After spending a month in Mecca, Ibn Battuta departed the holiest city in Islam on November 17, 1326, he joined a large caravan heading towards Baghdad, which was a key city linking the Middle East and Asia. The caravan departed Mecca and traveled north to Medina. After six days there, it was off towards Baghdad in modern-day Iraq. Now, there was something very important about this caravan, and that is that it was the first official caravan to travel to Mecca from the Ilkhanid state. This is the Mongol kingdom, or Khanate, that was centered around Persia, which is modern-day Iran. The Mongol rulers of the Khanate had, by this time, converted to Islam, and this was their first major caravan to come to Mecca. 
This was important because it had been the Mongols who had swept into the Middle East 60 to 70 years earlier, leaving devastation in their wake. We will talk more about that later. Now, we have seen Ibn Battuta display the ability to find sponsors all along his journey to Mecca. People offered him shelter, protection, and money. He had even gotten married twice in the past year, although those wives are in our rearview mirror. Well, Ibn Battuta's talent for finding new sponsors was as effective as always. For this journey, he was taken under the wing of Amir al-Hajj, Pelawan Muhammad al-Hawai, the caravan's head guy. The Amir, which means ruler or general, granted Ibn Battuta a double camel litter, meaning he would be traveling in a sort of hammock. This was immensely comfortable compared to the alternatives. He also had access to food, water, and medicine as needed. You know, in reality, we really can't fully understand what kind of person Ibn Battuta was. We just don't know enough about him for such a critique. But I think this sort of thing demonstrates a guy who was very likable and smart and charming. To be able to ingratiate himself with powerful people on a consistent basis shows a unique talent, and I'm not saying that in a bad way. I look at someone like Richard Francis Burton, who couldn't help not being a first-class ass to anyone he deemed inferior, and it boggles the mind. It sabotages so many opportunities. What Ibn Battuta had was a special quality, and it was going to take him very far in the world. So for this trip to Baghdad, we're talking about 850 miles across the desert, or 1,400 kilometers. This is classic Saudi Arabia stuff, through great sandy deserts and caked earth. However, it was over a well-established trade route with known water sources. The trek from Medina to Al-Najaf, which is south of Baghdad, would take 44 days. From Al-Najaf, it was a short jaunt to Baghdad. But you know what? The ever-ancy Ibn Battuta decided a trip south to Basra, which is at the southern end of the Tigris-Euphrates Delta, would be a cool idea. A little geography-slash-history discussion is probably appropriate at this time. Ibn Battuta was now in an area called Mesopotamia. The heart of Mesopotamia is the lands between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, which run, roughly, north to south and parallel with each other. The two rivers are only a few hundred miles apart, at most, but those fertile lands in between are what birthed one of the great early civilizations in the history of the world. And in the heart of Mesopotamia lay Baghdad, Ibn Battuta's ultimate destination. Now, a couple of important things about arriving in Mesopotamia. First, these were no longer the lands ruled by the Turkish Mamluks. Mesopotamia was the western part of the Ilkhanate, the descendants of the Mongols who had swept through the region about 65 years earlier. The second major thing that Ibn Battuta was finding was that Mesopotamia, despite being a Muslim-dominated territory, was different, from a religious standpoint, than the world he was accustomed to. And that's because Shiism was the predominant branch of Islam in this region. Ibn Battuta was a Sunni Muslim. The two sects had been formed over a disagreement on who should succeed Muhammad as Islam's leader following the death of the Prophet in 632. This led to a schism in Islam and over the centuries some bitter disputes. As a result, the Sunni versus Shia rivalry has made sides suspicious of one another at best. At its worst, there were brutal atrocities. These tensions were in play in Ibn Battuta's time as well as into the 21st century. Ibn Battuta would find many worthy individual Shia Muslims, but on the whole, he does not care for them. He thinks they are unreasonable fanatics. For the most part, he avoids dealing with Shia religious scholars. So, after a few days in Al-Najaf, where he visited the city's historic tombs and temples, Ibn Battuta headed towards Basra. The Euphrates River, which empties into the Tigris River, not far from Basra, was avoided as it was mostly impassable swamps going south. Instead, Ibn Battuta went east for five days, overland, to the city of Wazid on the Tigris. 
He traveled with a group of Arabs in a caravan, hiring himself a camel for the journey. His companions planned a three-day rest in Wazit, so Ibn Battuta went on an overnight excursion to a nearby village to visit the tomb of Sheikh Ahmed ibn al-Rafai, the founder of the Sufi order in the 12th century. Sufism is a religious practice within Sunni Islam, and Ibn Battuta was a faithful follower. He was thrilled to meet one of the Sheikh's descendants. It was not long before Ibn Battuta was back on the road, arriving in Basra in late January of 1327. The city was an important one, a key port at the northern tip of the Persian Gulf. In addition to trade, it was an important Islamic cultural and educational center. The city had avoided being sacked by the Mongols the previous century, but it had suffered as a result of the overall devastation of the area. Ibn Battuta was disappointed by what he perceived as the failures of the city's religious and educational leaders. At a mosque, he was appalled by grammatical errors in a sermon, saying, quote, I was astonished by this conduct, end quote. He then added, quote, In this town, there is not a man left who knows anything of the science of grammar, end quote. Ibn Battuta was treated kindly by the city's governor, as well as the local Sunnis. They gave him gifts and presents, all of which would help him sustain his travels. As usual, he visited local mosques and the graves of notable people. After a week or two in Basra, Ibn Battuta was on the move again. This time he took a small river boat about 10 miles to the ocean. He noted the traders and merchants along the way, dealing bread, fish, dates, milk, and fruit. It was here, at the village of Abadan, that Ibn Battuta heard the story of a Sufi hermit who ate only fish and lived in the local marsh. Ibn Battuta loved this sort of thing, so he set out in search of the man, finding him residing in the ruins of an abandoned mosque. The hermit shared fish with Ibn Battuta, and after talking with him, gave him his blessing. This sort of thing moved our young explorer. He admired men who devoted their lives to finding enlightenment. He would write, quote, For a moment, I entertained the idea of spending the rest of my life in the service of this sheikh. End quote. But Ibn Battuta was too restless for such a thing. As I said, he had wanderlust, and sitting in a swamp contemplating his lot in life was just not for him. He had places to go, thanks to experience. At this point, Ibn Battuta could have turned around and went north towards Baghdad, but he let his wanderlust get the better of him again. He decided to go to the city of Isfuhan in the Zagros Mountains to the east. This is very much the explorer in Ibn Battuta at work, the person always looking for something new to experience. He even says that he liked to shun any road that he has already traveled. The Zagros Mountains form a border between Mesopotamia and the Iranian Plateau. For this journey, Ibn Battuta got a new boat and headed east along the coast of the Persian Gulf, debarking at the city of Machul, which is today called Bandar Dilam. This was probably a journey of about 100 miles or 160 kilometers. Ibn Battuta then got himself a horse and joined some merchants going across the plain of Khuzestan, traveling through marshes and fields of sugarcane. He found the local people, called Lures, to be uncivilized, but they treated him well. He gravitated to the scholars and intellectuals wherever he went. He continued into the mountains, reaching Isfuhan, which rested at an altitude of more than 5,000 feet, or 1,500 meters. Here he was in the heart of Persia, just 270 miles south of Tehran, or 440 kilometers. The city was famed for its architecture, including its magnificent bridges, mosques, and buildings. However, the Mongol invasion in the previous century had sent the city into decline. Ibn Battuta wrote, quote, The city of Isfuhan is one of the largest and fairest of cities, but it is now in ruins for the greater part, end quote. I've talked about the Mongol invasions earlier, but I want to expand on it for a moment because I think it's such a crucial thing for this part of the world. The Mongol hordes that had swept out of Asia had brought destruction wherever they went, and no place took the brunt of that destruction more than Persia. 
Here, Ibn Battuta saw that devastation. Entire cities had been depopulated. Refugees had flooded cities to the west. It had been terrible, and some places had never recovered. Other cities were now just coming back from the brink of destruction, even 60-plus years later. And we're talking about cities whose populations numbered in the hundreds of thousands a century ago. Now they were gone, or a tenth of their original numbers. For Ibn Battuta's homeland, Morocco, these were just stories that people had heard about. The Mongol invasions had little effect on the land so far west. But now he was fully seeing the devastation wrought by the Mongol invaders. By the way, one of the interesting twists, something history loves to give us, is that the Mongols ended up conquering Persia, but were themselves then conquered, but in a different way. The Mongols were really good at destroying and killing. I mean, really good at it. However, at some point, the killing and destroying was done, and they said, hey, now we need to rule this place. Well, for that, they needed the people. They needed the locals. And in Persia, they found an old and sophisticated culture. And slowly but surely, the Mongols were in turn seduced by that culture. They liked the cool and fancy stuff. They intermarried with the locals and in time adopted Islam. Anyhow, Ibn Battuta spent two weeks in Isfuhan and then headed south towards Shiraz, about 300 miles or 500 kilometers away. He followed historic trade routes and made good time, reaching the city in 10 days. It was now mid-April, 1327. Shiraz had a reputation as a great center of learning. The city had narrowly avoided the wrath of the Mongols, so Ibn Battuta found it vibrant and healthy, saying, quote, "...its inhabitants are handsome in figure and clean in their dress. In the whole east there is no city except Shiraz, which approaches Damascus in the beauty of its bazaars, fruit gardens, and rivers." End quote. In Shiraz, Ibn Battuta did his typical thing. He visited people of religious and political importance. He stayed at the local college and went to the mosques and tombs of notable figures. After about two weeks, he got on the road to Baghdad. It would take Ibn Battuta about five to six weeks to reach the city of Kufa, just south of Baghdad. He was now on the pilgrim trail to the city, even passing the famed ruins of ancient Babylon along the way. He was traveling into the heart of the cradle of Western civilization. And then, in the first week of June 1327, Ibn Battuta reached the fabled city of Baghdad. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, explorers. It's Matt. What if you could poke, prod, and explore the mysteries of nature from wherever you are? Outside In is the award-winning podcast from New Hampshire Public Radio that allows you to do just that. From explorations of nature to important conversations about climate change and sustainability, award-winning reporter and host Nate Hedgie covers all kinds of topics related to our world. They cover fascinating topics, like the wild horses of the American West and why they are so divisive, little-known tales from the world of competitive dog sled racing, and the disappearing dunes of coastal Oregon that inspired the desert planet of Arrakis. Through in-depth reporting and narrative storytelling, Outside In meets listeners wherever they are to take them on the journey. It's not just for through-hikers and conservationists. 
It is a podcast for anyone who is curious about the natural world. Listen to new episodes every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Baghdad is one of the legendary cities of the ancient world. It was centrally located between the east and the west, benefiting from the natural trade that happens in such a situation. Plus, it was a crossroads of people coming and going, allowing for the exchange of knowledge, ideas, and culture. At its height, during the 8th and 9th centuries, which is called the Islamic Golden Age, the population reached as high as 1.5 million. It may have been the world's largest city at the time. It was the commercial and cultural hub of the Middle East. But by the 10th century, the city's influence waned. And then, in 1258, it was sacked by the Mongols, the majority of the population massacred or made refugees. Large sections of the city were destroyed, including the canals and dikes that comprised the city's critical irrigation system. Baghdad was left in ruins, and when Ibn Battuta arrived, it was just a ghost of its past glories. Despite all of that, it was still important. It was in a crucial location, a vital cog in facilitating commerce between east and west. And the colleges, most of which had been destroyed by the Mongols, were being rebuilt. The city and the Mesopotamian region formed the western edge of the Ilkhanate, the empire established by the Mongols after the capture of the region. The current ruler was Abu Sa'id, called the Ilkhan, who had come to the throne in 1316 at the age of 12, making him a year younger than Ibn Battuta. In fact, the Ilkhan was in Baghdad when Ibn Battuta arrived in the summer of 1327. The Ilkhan brought a huge retinue with him wherever he traveled, essentially a moving city. There were soldiers, servants, slaves, government officials and administrators, wives and children, and anyone else needed to run the Khanate. When Ibn Battuta arrived in Baghdad, the great traveling behemoth was getting ready to head back east. Ibn Battuta worked his way into the court of Abu Sa'id. The emperor was a cultivated young man who played the lute, wrote Arabic and Persian, and composed songs and poetry. While not a Sunni, the Ilkhan was known to be a pious, generous, and tolerant Muslim. He is a great example of how the lands and culture of Persia had made the Mongol conquerors more Persian than Mongol. Ibn Battuta liked him. Also, Ibn Battuta found his way into the good graces of others within the Ilkhan's court. This included Allah al-Din Muhammad, one of the leading generals of the empire. The man would invite Ibn Battuta to travel with the Ilkhan's great caravan heading east. Ibn Battuta accepted. This was a perfect opportunity to see more of the world, and all under the protection of important and powerful people. Before departing Baghdad, Ibn Battuta attended lectures given by religious leaders and scholars, but his time in the ancient city was short, no more than two to three weeks. He then readied himself to depart for Persia. Ibn Battuta had the pleasure of witnessing the mobilization of the Ilkhan's great retinue. It was all done with tremendous pomp and fanfare. There were the emirs, or generals, leading their troops. There were drums, trumpets, banners, horses, and carriages. It was a great spectacle. The caravan of the Ilkhan headed east into the Zagros Mountains. The destination was Sultania, about 170 miles northwest of Tehran. It was the newly designated capital of the Khanate. However, after about 10 days on the road, Ibn Battuta's patron, Allah al-Din Muhammad, was ordered to go north to Tabriz. Ibn Battuta was given permission to travel with him. This was another boon for the ever-curious Ibn Battuta, as Tabriz had recently developed into one of the preeminent cities in the empire. It was a key economic center in the Eurasian world, as more and more traders and merchants bypassed Baghdad and came to Tabriz. The city had been saved from being sacked by the Mongols by opening their gates to them and accepting their rule. The Ilkhan had beautified the city, constructing grand buildings, including colleges and mosques. 
However, Ibn Battuta would only get to spend a single night in Tabriz, as Allah ad-Din Muhammad received orders to return immediately to the Ilkhan and his caravan. Not wanting to get caught without a benefactor, Ibn Battuta headed south with the emir. Also, Ibn Battuta had a new plan in mind. He was going to return to Baghdad and catch the year's Hajj caravan going to Mecca. His intention was to complete a second Hajj. Allah al-Din Muhammad returned to the caravan of the Ilkhan, and it was here that Ibn Battuta was invited to meet the Ilkhan himself. This was an incredible opportunity and something rare for a man of Ibn Battuta's stature. He would meet the Ilkhan, Abu Sa'id, in the royal tent. The Ilkhan asked Ibn Battuta about his own lands as well as his travels. In Ibn Battuta's writings, there is surprisingly not much else said about the meeting or the Mongol emperor. But Abu Sa'id was impressed enough with the young Berber to give him a new robe and a horse. Plus, there was a letter of introduction for him to take to Baghdad, with instructions for the governor to give Ibn Battuta camels and provisions for his Hajj. Ibn Battuta thus left the company of the Ilkhan. The journey to Tabriz and the return to Baghdad had been quick, and Ibn Battuta was back in the city by mid-July. This gave him two months before the departure of the Hajj caravan, so he did what he always did. He explored. Ibn Battuta headed north up the Tigris River towards the Kurdish city of Mosul. He then did a 360-mile circle, going up into what is modern-day Turkey and ended up back in Mosul. Along the way, he lodged with important officials, including the governor of Mosul and the chief Qadi in the city of Mardin. There was also a visit to a Kurdish mystic who lived on top of a mountain. The mystic gave Ibn Battuta some silver coins, which he kept for years until he lost them to bandits in India. From Mosul, Ibn Battuta joined up with a feeder caravan heading to Baghdad, aiming to join up with the bigger caravan going to Mecca. Ibn Battuta quickly found a new benefactor, this time an elderly holy woman, a Sufi mystic named Sit Zahida. The old woman had been on many hajjas in her life, and by coming under her wing, Ibn Battuta now had the protection and aid of her and her Sufi disciples. Sadly, this would be the woman's final journey, as she died on the trek to Mecca and was buried in the desert. In Baghdad, Ibn Battuta turned in his letter of introduction from the Ilkhan, thus securing himself camels and provisions for four people for the upcoming Hajj. He would also run into some good luck when he found the man running the caravan, Amir al-Hajj Palawan Muhammad al-Hawi, was the same guy who had commanded the return caravan from Mecca. Ibn Battuta had become a friend with the man. All things were thus looking pretty good for Ibn Battuta. The caravan from Baghdad would have departed in mid-September of 1327. This was a well-established route, and the caravan was large and well-protected. Unfortunately for Ibn Battuta, the journey across the Arabian desert was going to be a miserable one. It was not long after departing Baghdad that he developed dysentery, and it would plague him all the way to Mecca. Thankfully, Ibn Battuta had camels to carry him for much of the trek, and his friend, the expedition's commander, kept a close eye on the young man. And so, when Ibn Battuta, frail and thin from weeks of sickness, finally arrived in Mecca, he was only just beginning to recover his health. In fact, because of his poor health, Ibn Battuta completed several of the more strenuous parts of the Hajj on horseback instead of on foot. It was a taxing and exhausting affair for Ibn Battuta, but he successfully completed his second Hajj. He was only 23 years old. As we talked about last time, every Muslim was required to complete a Hajj at some point in their life, but doing more than one Hajj was considered a good thing, even encouraged. The more, the better. At this point, Ibn Battuta had been on the road nonstop for over two years. He had suffered his share of illnesses along the way, but the recent bout of dysentery was especially debilitating. He knew that he needed to take some time to rest and recover his health. And thus, Ibn Battuta took up residence in Mecca, the holiest city in all of Islam. And, as always, he did okay for himself. 
He took up residence at a local madrasa, a college, and took on the role of a traveling scholar or pilgrim in residence as dubbed by Rossi Dunn in his book on Ibn Battuta and his travels. Of it all, Ibn Battuta said, quote, I led a most agreeable existence, end quote. Ibn Battuta spent either one year in Mecca or three. His records are confusing. Either way, during this time, he cultivated relationships, made friends, and studied. He also found new sponsors and patrons, people to help him now and on his future journeys. And none of this should be taken lightly. Ibn Battuta was in one of the most important cities in the Muslim world, and for at least a year, he would have met and entertained high-ranking people from every corner of the Islamic map. It was an incredible way to lay the seeds for future explorations and travels. Otherwise, Ibn Battuta is, surprisingly, scant on details about his stay in Mecca, probably because he wasn't traveling and wasn't discovering new and fascinating places. And perhaps he took some deep dives into his education. We just don't know for sure. No matter, when Ibn Battuta was ready to move on, we knew that he was not going to head home. The wanderlust still had a hold on him, and he was determined to continue his travels. For the next stage of his life, he decided he would head south and visit Yemen in the southwest corner of the Arabian Peninsula. But the reality of Ibn Battuta's next journey will be much grander, because while Yemen is on the agenda, the realms of eastern Africa are going to follow very quickly. This will mean places like Mogadishu, Mombasa, Zanzibar, and Kiowa. And beyond those places, there is much, much more. But those adventures will be for next time. I want to wrap up today's story summarizing the life of Ibn Battuta to this point. And when I say I'm doing this, I really mean Ross E. Dunn, who wrote a groundbreaking book on Ibn Battuta and his travels in 1986. Dunn says this of our Berber traveler, quote, In a year's time, he had traveled more than 4,000 miles, crossed the Zagros Mountains four times, and the Arabian Desert twice visited most of the great cities of Iraq and western Persia, and met scholars, qadis, governors, and Atabeg, which is a noble, and even a Mongol king. End quote. He then goes on to say that if Ibn Battuta had gone home and wrote out the stories of his travels, it would have been a pretty amazing book. But you know what? There's more. Lots more. And so that wraps up things for today. I hope you've enjoyed our story thus far. Join us next time when Ibn Battuta sets off for the eastern coast of Africa. I want to take a moment to thank all of our show's supporters, including our wonderful and amazing patrons. I'm always moved and honored that so many of you want to help out the show and be a part of it. This list includes Dan, Eileen, Arthur, Gregory, Jean-Paul, Donal, Craig, Jesse, Catherine, Chris, Robert, Rudy, Andrew, Benjamin, Cameron, George, Christopher, Collier, David, Eamon, Elizabeth, Eric, Mark, Mitchell, Peter, Philip, Ralph, Susan, Thomas, and many, many others. Thank you again. If you want to help out the show, go to explorerspodcast.com. You can make a direct donation to the podcast via PayPal or by checking out our Patreon program. So that is it for today. Thank you for listening. I will see you next time. The Explorers Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Go to airwavemedia.com to find other super cool podcasts, including Rainbow Puppy Science Lab and Tumble, both science podcasts perfect for the entire family. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story. It's unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, The French Revolution is a long-form history podcast 
dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today.